Where we left David last week, he was escaping from the household of Saul at the end of chapter 20. He and Jonathan, his friend, who have been friends because of the faith. Ever since the moment when David defeats Goliath and Jonathan sees this young man who has stood in the name of the Lord, and we remember, of course, how Jonathan himself has gone up to fight in the name of Christ fearlessly, ever since they share that faith and that understanding of who they are in God as a people of God, they are knit together in ways that will follow through the end of our, our reading today. But when we last left again... David had run away, as Jonathan has warned him, my father is going to kill you. He's so upset he's almost killed me. Just go ahead and get out of here. It's going to be okay. Uh, so that's where David is in chapter 21 when he comes to Nob. Our reading mentions Abiathar the priest. His entire family and situation is going to be connected to these priests at Nob. And the way that that story goes, if you want to kind of follow along in chapter 21, you'll be able to see. If not, I'll carry it just over the top. Um, David has got no one with him, very few people with him. Uh, some of his men, he doesn't quite have the the full 400 that come to have been at Adulam yet, but he's not alone. He's got some fighters with him. But they're trying to get away again from the royal house of Saul, who has all the power of the state on his side. They are effectively vigilantes, um, and they don't have any food. So they go by this location where uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant and or the priesthood are connected to it. Certainly the ephod that we'll hear about in a moment is there. And here's a, here's a city of priests. There's a whole bunch of priests. And he asks for help. And it's a pretty cool moment where he says, do you have any bread? And the priest is like, well, we do. We have this bread, um, but it's pretty special bread. It's not quite the bread that's in the Lord's Supper. It, it's kind of like the bread that would be left over after the Lord's Supper, although it's really nothing like that at all. It's, it's like its own thing, which is all part of Torah and the way that they're supposed to minister before the Lord. And this bread that is no longer being used, but is kind of left over, is there. And what ensues is a neat little discussion where the priest kind of says, well, there's a, there's a way that you could have this bread. And David comes back and he's like, well, absolutely, we could have this bread. And he gives three Three reasons. He lists out three reasons why they can have the bread, and they're all from Torah. This is one of the key moments to me. If you want to know the difference between David and Saul, <laughs> what's the difference between David and Saul? David knows Torah. He actually cares. He doesn't want the bread if it's going to break the law of God. But if, in fact, there is room within the law of God for him to take the bread today, he wants the bread. And so he's going to get the bread, he does that, and he also gets the sword of Goliath at this time, which he had had before, but is being kept there. Um, this all seems fine enough, that, except there's a moment where uh, does David lie? This is sort of a question a little bit. When, when the, the head of the priest, who is not Abiathar, is Ahimelech, um, when, he, when he meets David, he says, you know, why are you here? David says, well, I'm on the king's business. Ooh. <laughs> well, yeah, you kind of are, sort of, you know, king's son at least, you know. And, and this is David's way of sort of not giving anyone else the guilt. 
If you can look at it this way, David is not going to get them in trouble because they're just never going to know that he's fleeing in that way. I mean, who would kill them for their ignorance? That's sort of where David's at. But as the story is going to go, and this is the sad thing, well, Saul will kill them for their ignorance. But let's, let's kind of get there in a moment. They give him the bread, uh, and it just makes notion at, at this point in chapter 7 uh, that this guy Dig the Edomite, who is the chief of Saul's herdsmen, that he just happened to be there that day. And that's how Saul's going to learn about this a little bit later. Um, but from here, David flees to Gath. This is verse 10 and following of chapter 21, which is near and dear to my heart as a story, um, is a place where I just kind of get inspiration from David as a guy. It's like, what did he have to do when he was up against a wall? And, and what did he do? Um, this story shows that. So Gath, you might remember, this is like where uh, uh, where Goliath is from, right? This is the Philistine capital. This is not a place where you would think he would go, but he's fleeing with a small group of men. And he's trying to hide. He gets there, and unfortunately, he's recognized. And so it is told to the king of Gath, and they're whispering at court, this is that guy who killed all our people. Uh, and so David decides that this is not a good place for him to hide, but he also realizes that he's surrounded. So verse 13 tells us he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, <laughs> uh, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let the saliva fall down on his beard. Uh, the result of all this behavior is that they, they think he's nuts and they leave him alone. Uh, the king's like, why would I waste my time with this loon? Obviously, whatever he was, he's not that anymore. Uh, so the ploy works for David, and he's able to then leave after this. But there's, there's again, more going on in the story if you just remember who David is, that he's not some random guy who just does whatever he feels like doing. He's a guy who has somewhere in his world, in his history, a copy of Torah. He's got a copy of Moses, first five books of the Old Testament. He's got that. And he reads this like it's the only thing that's true on the planet. He knows it forward. He knows it backward. He studies it. He ponders it. He does everything according to it up until like his third wife. And then, then it gets a little off. But, but by and large, his life is still dominated by his desire to, to have this word be what he knows. He wants this God to be his God. Uh, and so in studying that, he knows that the Torah says you're to write the scriptures upon the doorposts of your house. And so while I don't doubt that he was indeed putting spittle in his beard to look a little crazy, I think when he was scrawling on the doorposts of his house and on the walls of his house, I don't think he was writing random stuff at all. I think having escaped and no longer having the copy of Moses with him, he did know some of it from heart and he was writing on his house to keep his mind in the word of his God while his enemies believed him to be out of it entirely, to have no mind at all. And so he saw a path, and he took that path, which is going to continue to be the hallmark of David. Again and again, he just makes the right decision. And we'll see this leading all the way up to the moments where he's able to kill Saul and does not do so. He makes the right decision again. Why? Because he knows 
the word of God. And he says, I'm not going to hurt the one God chose. God can do that when he wants to. That's trust again that David shows. And why are we, we studying David at all? Because as a man after God's own heart, as a forerunner of Christ, the father of Christ in many ways, but less than Christ and just like us, with his promise that he is the king of Israel, so you have the promise of holy baptism to make you a priest and a royal one at that in the kingdom of the Most High God. Your promises are greater than the promises to David. And so to see how David takes his promises and holds them and lives with them is to inspire us, I believe, to live the same way. Not just one man among Israel, but all of Israel redeemed and out to the nations as, as we surely are. So again, David escapes from, from Gath, he leaves, and he goes uh, to this place called Adullam, chapter 22, verse 1. Uh, the cave of Adullam. If you ever visit the Hebron Collegium, our little spiritual retreat center in Gap Year Bible School for Men, uh, the great room where there's a giant table to seat all the guys uh, is called the Hall of Adullam. Uh, there is no hall of Adullam in the Bible. There's only the cave of Adullam, but it's, you know, it's a hall, not a cave. Uh, this hall, though, this place where the men gather, the reason I named it that is because the whole point of the Hebrew Collegium, it's a school for studying the Psalms. It's to encourage young men to take some time out of their life, two weeks, three months, six months, a year, to give extra attention to praying the Psalter before they go off and fight the rest of the battles of their world. And in that way, gathering at Adalam in the cave with David, right, they're getting together to be bound up as his men, his mighty men, to go forth and do battle in this world. Uh, that's the way that the entire school over there tries to take the naming of the rooms. All the rooms have little riddles connected to the life of the student body in prayer. It's said here at Adullam, David's living in his cave, and there's a bunch of people that start to gather to him. Verse 2, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him, so he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Now, I mean, this is, this is indeed the makings of rebellion. It certainly is. I mean, he's got an army, and his army is made up of people who owe money to other people <laughs> and can't pay their way, right? And they're not happy with the current governmental situation, right? And you could see how this could make Saul nervous. Uh, at the same time, you could see how this could give David the power to do something. And what does he do? He proceeds to protect Israel from her enemies. He proceeds to make it safe in certain areas. There's no thieving going on. He goes off against the king of Moab, I believe, next for a moment, right? Um, he goes and actually makes kind of a treaty with him. But what David does is he'll use every single moment to enhance the peace in the name of the kingdom, even though the king at the top is doing everything he can to kill David. And this will just continue to be the pursuit that goes on as Saul does hear that David had been at Nob, right? He's staying at Gibeah and Ramah, spear in hand. This is verse 6 of chapter 22. And then he hears about, just he actually kind of whines a bit, right? Listen to this. Hear now, you Benjaminites, right? It's his tribe, tribalism going on. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? 
All you have conspired against me, and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is to this day. I mean, it's just simony and filthy lucre everywhere. Didn't I pay you all? You all were a bunch of nobody Benjaminites, and I gave you captains in the military and power, and none of you will make me feel better <laughs> by finding my enemy, David. Rawr, right? Saul, again, just shows a complete lack of anything but his own passion for himself. There's, there's no trust. There's no love. He's one of the most disappointing people I could ever imagine. This guy, Deg, though, he's pretty disappointing too. Deg the Edomite, who was over the servants of Saul, who says, I saw the son of Jesse go to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, verse 10. He inquired of the Lord for him, which was not true, um, and gave him provisions, gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. And so the result of this is that Saul's going to take all of his men. He's going to go to uh, this city of Nob, to the priest's. He's going to inquire why they are betraying him, why they are treasonous and helping his enemies. And they're going to say, wait a minute, <laughs> we're not, we didn't. Um, and uh, he's going to say, yes, you did because you helped David. He's then going to give orders that uh, his men are to kill all these priests. I believe it's 70 priests or so. And you really see how far Saul is out on his own that his men won't do it. They just won't do it. He's like, kill them all. Like the king's yelling, kill them all. And his soldiers are like, no, no, not the priests of Jesus. No. But Dag the Edomite, uh, he'll do it. And so he does it. He kills all of them that day. And, and apparently the women and children in the city as well, it tells us. It's pretty gross, really. And, and from there, uh, the, only one of them escapes. This is uh, verse 20. Uh, now, one of the sons of Elimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David and Saul uh, that Saul had killed Jesus Christ's priests. Right? So um, this is how that ephod is going to get to David from our reading a moment ago. And we're almost to that reading in the, in the text. Um, but first, there's, you know, as this one priest who was there that day giving bread to David escapes and everybody else, including like women and children are all dead. And this one priest gets to David. David's response again, I think is pretty valuable to hear. Right? So David verse 22 said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Deg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. You know, I really think I could spend 20 minutes just on that. I do. There's enough wisdom in that, what he says. What I just want you to see, though, is his owning of it. He owns it. He realizes that that moment when he didn't tell the entire truth, when he tried to protect them, it, it, was, it was playing a game he couldn't win. And he also realizes who his enemy is. This is pretty key, right? I saw that guy. I knew he was going to do this. I could have done something. But as David often is the case, he doesn't really look back. He just moves forward from here. 
Um, he's told that, verse 20, verse 1 of chapter 23, the Philistines are fighting against Kela, and they're robbing the threshing floors. So here, we have a city of Israel under assault. The Philistines are making it hard on our people. And what does David do? He inquires of the Lord whether he should go and attack these Philistines. And uh, this is kind of where our text almost picks up. Uh, it's the same story twice, really. And it has to do with that ephod thing. So when Abiathar the priest escapes from all of the murder of the priests at Nob, he brings with him what the text calls an ephod, which uh, we talked about this in Bible study quite a bit today, too. It's just not that clear what the word means once you dig down into its ancient meaning but it is clearly connected to priestly garb. It's something that the priests would wear, a cloak at times, but more likely tied up with the Aaronic breastplate as a concept, which is not disconnected from the turban that he wears and the things that hang down from that. It's quite an elaborate scheme that the high priest has to wear. Is this the actual high priestly breastplate? I don't know. But they seem to act like it because it's that high priestly breastplate that the Urim and the Thummim, the lights and the glories of Old Testament Mosaic Israel, ask God a question. He says yes or no. That's how, um, that's where it all happened, was in this breastplate on Aaron, which is tied to the idea of the ephod. So the idea, no matter what, is David has received with this priest the singular contact point between the God of Israel and the earth. That is, he can ask God questions and God will give him answers. This is something Saul could have done his entire kingdom. And he never does. And now, as soon as David has it in hand, he says, Jesus, tell me what to do. <laughs> what should I do? Like, it sounds like I should go help these people over in Kayla. Is that what I should do? And yeah, he says, go, attack, save Kayla. Um, David's men don't trust him. They're afraid of it. So David asks again, uh, verse four, the Lord answered him, arise, go down to Kayla. Uh, now it happened when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David to Kayla. He went down with his ephod in his hand, again, explaining that. And then Saul is going to hear in verse 7 that they're there. So David saves the city. It's great. Everyone's happy. But Saul finds out that he's there. It's a big city. There's a, there's a wall. There's gates. Like once you're inside and they shut the gates, you can't get out. That kind of thing. So Saul prepares to go and attack. And David has the same situation. He can, he can defend the city. Or he can go out and attack Saul. Or he can flee. But what does he do? He asks God what to do. He asks God what to do, and God answers him and says something that's kind of strange, though. He says, get out of the city. He says, the people won't be grateful that you saved them. Um, they're going to turn you over to Saul. Go ahead and flee. And this sets up a pattern that David's going to continue being in all the way up until he becomes king, which is that he's going to hide in the wilderness. God is not really going to let David settle. He'll get a little city called Ziklag where his wives and kids can live and his men's wives and kids can live. But they don't get to stay there. They end up off in the forest, up in the mountains. And truly, it's, it's the Robin Hood experience here uh, where David is going to be uh, fighting against the wicked while having to be called the wicked and stay in hiding. Um, so uh, he flees up into these strongholds uh, these various areas, cities and towns that have been, been up in the mountains, in the woods, 
uh, in the Ziphite region. And the part I want to focus in on again tonight before we miss it out of our actual reading uh, is uh, in verse, let's see here, 16 and following. Yes. Uh, then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear the hand of Saul. My father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before Jesus, before the Lord. And David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. Uh, this is the last time they will see each other uh, before Jonathan will be killed in battle uh, against the Philistines. And David is not able to engage in that battle. Um, there's quite a bit that's going to go on before then. Um, this is not the, the first time, though, that they've made this covenant idea. Um, in Old Testament Israel, in the Lakos of Moses, if you wanted to, you could go to the priests and you could offer a special sacrifice with your friend and make a covenant with each other before God and have the promise of certain blessings or at least that that oath that you speak to each other would be valid in God's sight. There's all sorts of kind of little ways to demonstrate your free will offering and faith and, and benevolence to each other or, or to the world in their society. So here they are just doing that again. What is interesting is that you know, they don't just take it for what was said a long time ago. Like, like a long time ago, David and Jonathan say, to the death, to the death in Jesus' name. And then they get together again many years later, and instead of just being like, yeah, we said that, they're like, yeah, to the death, to the death in Jesus' name. They, they, they do it again. Um, this is, just shows their friendship, I think. It shows their, their, their meet confession. They are steadfast with each other. The fact that Jonathan risks his life in many ways here to sneak out into the woods to have this conversation but the best part of it all, I think, is Jonathan's faith, Jonathan's knowledge of who he is, which, if I can rewind for a second, the whole story is about how Saul doesn't know who he is and how David does know who he is. And Jonathan isn't the main guy at all, but look at that. Right beside David, he also knows who he is. Now, what do I mean? Saul is anointed by the prophet of the Most High God to be king of Israel. That means he's going to be king of Israel, and yet he somehow doesn't believe that. He's constantly afraid of losing it and does everything he can to try to get it back on its own without ever looking to Christ to lead him. Like I said, he never goes to the priests and asks them to lead. Saul consistently demonstrates that even though God has chosen him to be king, he doesn't believe he can be king for very long. He has to fight God to try to keep it. David, on the other hand, consistently believes and shows that while he has certainly not become king, though he's chosen to be king, he will trust in that promise over against what he sees. The very king who is there in charge wants to kill him, and yet he will trust that God will bring it to pass, that God will make good on his promises. And in this, then, Jonathan is exactly the same. He, he knows that he has not been promised to be king, even though by any law of the ancient world, the son of the king would become the king. That is not what happened here. God anointed Jonathan. I'm assuming God anointed David. And so David is going to be king. And Jonathan sees this not as a reason to complain or hate because his life isn't what it could be, but sees it as a guarantee his life's going to be better than he ever imagined. 
that by ruling next to somebody, he would be happier than by ruling on his own. And where this really, I think, hits the road for us here tonight is if you can see in the big picture of the kingdom of David and the throne and the crown and the inheritance and the glory, how in a very real sense, this story is about David, this story is about Jesus. This story is about how Jesus came to this earth and the devil wanted to keep him off the throne, like Saul, right? The devil seeks to have him killed, but Jesus lives. Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. He's going to reign forever. And he has got that throne in hand, but no one sees it yet now, right? The world doesn't look like he's in charge right now. But we, like like Jonathan beside David, know who Christ is. We know his throne, we know what is coming, we know the promises, and we know we shall rule beside him. That is the the guarantee of our baptism into him. And that is why we gather together in the dark of winter. It's a nice February this year, but still the dark of winter every year. To repent one more time and, and to remember our place in this grand and miraculous kingdom. So Jonathan going out into the woods is very much like us coming here at a Lenten service to pray. You also just see this amazing brotherhood that every Christian man has with every other Christian man in the words of the Scripture. When we speak the Bible to each other, we unify and we grow together. And so also David and Jonathan did. Jonathan will go back to his house, as it said at the end of our reading. And there's a little bit more where Saul will go out and chase David. Um, We're setting up the situations where David will spare his life. But this is that one moment where they're out around a bigger mountain in that Ziph area, I believe. The wilderness of Ma'on um, in the plain on the south of Jeshahim. Uh, where is it though? And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Ma'on. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men were to take them. So it's, it's the nice movie moment where they've got them trapped, right? And the bigger army is surrounding the whole mountain and they're trying to hide up in the crags in the mountain. And then in verse 27, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have invaded the land. Um, this is not the final battle. I said that at the earlier service today um, where Saul will die, but it's setting up the trouble. And Saul's going to have more and more contention against Philistine armies until he will be destroyed by them uh, in just a couple of chapters. But it allows for David to escape just up into En Gedi. That's a wilderness forest region. And that's where we leave him tonight. So uh, with just a moment to close it, right, we've gone from he fled and he sought help, but his help turned into kind of a bigger problem than he ever meant to make. And yet God turned it for good and is continuing to bring to him the support that he needs in order to make it. That is going to be a standard reality for your life as a Christian. You're going to try to do stuff. It's going to blow up in your face and sometimes be worse. And yet at the end of the day, Jesus is going to redeem everything that goes on in your life in order to get you where you need to be for the next thing, which might not be reigning over your own kingdom. It might just be something small like meeting somebody when they need to be met and strengthening them in God with a good word. We aren't all meant to be great powers and great people. We're meant to walk in quiet and peaceful lives through a land of shadow and darkness in the trust that the light of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, 
And the grace in which we stand to know that our prayers are answered is sufficient to hold us together with these stories about our Lord as the meat indeed. In Jesus' name, amen.